Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com you are now listening to postmortem with mick garris where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts literally to the renowned horror director writer and producer now here's your host mick garris I'm Mick Garris, and from the far-off, socially distant world headquarters of Nice Guy Productions, this is Postmortem. There are changes going on. Have you noticed? It's subtle, but there is an invasion sweeping the world, and I'm not talking about a disease. Rather, our beloved horror genre is, hold on to your hipster hats, earning respect by the mainstream. It's only a ripple now. There was a trace of it back in 1991 when Silence of the Lambs did a major Oscar sweep. But people back then did everything they could to minimize the encroachment of horror onto the red carpets, calling it a thriller, not a horror movie. But you and I, we know better. There has always been artistry in the nightmare world of horror movies dating back to the silent days of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari and its macabre brethren. But now, that blood-red creep into the world cinema psyche is reaching out into the widest audience ever. With filmmakers specializing in creating unique, inventive, perceptive evocations of our darkest dreams working at full power, we get the visions of Robert Eggers, Bong Joon-ho, Jennifer Kent, Jordan Peele, and Ari Aster, among many others, moving out of the art house and into the, well, now evacuated cinemas. Maybe it's not long before we are no longer consigned to the gutter. Okay, I might be dreaming. But never has there been more artistry on display in the world of horror's cinematic history than there is now. And our guest today is probably its most profound proponent, Guillermo del Toro. He's a brilliant fine artist, writer, director, and producer who has worked with equal success and brilliance in the art house and the cinema blockbuster. His most recent film, The Shape of Water, brought both sides together into an Oscar-winning amalgamation of artistry and popular success. We'll chat with him about movies, monsters, and magic after this. Fangoria's latest movie, Porno, is available on demand now. When five teen employees at the local movie theater in a small Christian town discover a mysterious old film hidden in its basement, they unleash an alluring succubus who gives them a sex education written in blood. See the movie some moms are calling not family-friendly at all. Porno is available on demand everywhere. 
Also, we are very excited to welcome the Boulay Brothers to the Fangoria Podcast Network. Join horror hosts, producers, writers, and drag icons for their new show, The Boulay Brothers Creatures of the Night, on the Fangoria Podcast Network. On each episode, the Boulay Brothers welcome listeners to join them as they discuss the latest projects they're working on, share behind-the-scenes details from their hit show, The Boulay Brothers Dragula, streaming now on Netflix, and more. Subscribe now and listen everywhere you get your audio content. Fright Rags has been bringing you the best in horror apparel and accessories since 2003, offering a wide range of products for your favorite creature features, slasher flicks, and cult classics. Well, I'll be greased and fried. Fright Rags has a brand new collection for the Kyoto Brothers classic, Killer Clowns from Outer Space, featuring all new t-shirts and restocks of their classic socks. All officially licensed and available now at fright-rags.com. Postmortem listeners get 10% off when they use code POSTMORTEM10. That's fright-rags.com, code POSTMORTEM10. Fangoria is offering a free two-month digital membership to everyone. Go to Fangoria.com for more information and to make an account. Then pour over all the exclusive articles, interviews, and reviews on the site, as well as original video content and podcasts like Postmortem. You'll even have access to high-resolution scans of the original run of Fangoria magazine. Go to Fangoria.com now to start your free digital membership. And if you're looking to add to your social distancing watch list, Fangoria's latest movie, VFW, is now available to stream on demand, and Satanic Panic and Puppet Master The Littlest Reich are streaming on Shudder now. And by the way, so is Nightmare Cinema. So, Guillermo, you were brought up as a very devout Catholic in Mexico, in Guadalajara. Um, tell me how that led you into the world of monsters, because childhood also plays a huge part in all of your movies. Well, you know, the, the funny thing is that uh, having been raised on a cosmogony as strong as the Catholic uh, mythology or uh, uh, credo or dogma, you know, whatever you want to call it, it, it was not uh, hard to transmit in many ways to save myself uh, as a kid, as a very, at a very early age. I found that monsters were actually key to preserving my identity and my sanity. And this sounds like, an, like a nice thing that is, is an, uh, perhaps being oversold or I'm exaggerating, but it wasn't. I, I have the absolute certainty that uh, this is what spiritually made me understand the world. Uh, that uh, I was raised in a world that was that had your salvation encroached by original sin and by the very flimsy, very uh, difficult pathway of Catholic idea of sin. And uh, on the other hand, uh, social rules and ideas of what was perfect and good and acceptable that were suffocating and scary, and that I saw broken by adults day after day after day. They would say one thing and do another. 
And then I found the monsters and they were completely cohesive. They, they looked and did what they were meant to do and uh, they didn't care about appearance. They didn't care about uh, any rules. They, they, were, they were not necessarily iconoclastic all the time, but they were certainly a, a, an exhalation from the constant holding your breath of all the other moral uh, rules and all the social rules. And, and I thought, oh, I feel like that. I feel like them. I like them. You know, I, uh, they, were, they became as important to me as Catholic iconography. You know, I, I, it's not an exaggeration for me to say that uh, the, the creature of Frankenstein as played by Boris Karloff was as strong a spiritual icon as anything in the Catholic uh, imagery. And, and I identified with him more at a, at a foundational level than with anything else that I was told was good and, and saint. And, and, and this, this was like, like uh, I never have approached the, the genre as a fan. I always have approached it as a devout evangelist, as a devout believer. I, that's why uh, more often than not, I, I refuse to play with a postmodern interpretation of it. I, I do what I would call this neo-romanticism in a way. Mm -hmm. I, I love it as much. I am respectful of the things that make it great, and I'm respectful of the things that people think make it bad. This is a very difficult thing to ex explain, but that comes from then. That moment as a Catholic boy, because I was in the Society for the Virgin Mary, I was I was growing up to be a priest. My my uh, my great aunt raised me with the idea that I would become a, a, a priest, and then I found this other religion that she hated, and and but but saved me. The religion of monsters. Do do you feel that you were a lonely child? Did you? Oh yeah. So you I did not. The monsters were your friends, became your friends, yeah. the, the club of outsiders, right? Yeah, and, and, and I, was, I, was, uh, I was an outsider too, and, but the, the main thing is I was an observer. And, and the long passage in the Mary Shelley novel and in, in, in the myth of Frankenstein, uh, where the creature observes the family. Uh, eating and and going about their day and and learning how to read and how to to form words and form concepts, I, I very much that could be my childhood. And and uh, and uh, on the other hand, as a kid, I was very young and I had uh, thoughts that were full of fear. Uh, I I could I would witness violence and would not understand it because. Wasn't the world supposed to not be like that? And then in the horror movies, violence was part of the of the language, part of it, and it acknowledged it rather than denied it. And and I thought, oh, this makes more sense at a real level. Uh, so the outsider part, yes, was very important, but also it was the fact that it dealt with things that decomposed, that aged, that uh, that faded. And there is a thing um, in Japanese culture called wabi-sabi, 
you know, which is the beauty of the decayed and the used and the old and the forgotten and the dented. I think that monster, uh, monster Wabi Sabi overtook my life uh, at a very early age. Interesting. Um, so much of your work, especially the more personal stuff like Pan's Labyrinth and The Devil's Backbone, deal with the isolation of a very sad childhood. And yeah. the sad childhood and ghosts, particularly in Devil's Backbone, are a very potent image. And did you feel that divorced from the world that was around you as this childhood would represent? Did you dream those dreams? Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I I I lived a lot of time uh, of my time with my great aunt, whom, whom we used to call my grandmother. Uh, but I lived there, and uh, she would tell me uh, stories of the Bible. But she also would tell me about a time, many months, where her and her husband lived in a haunted house in Morelia, Michoacan. You know, and how ghosts would materialize. She told me a particularly haunting story. There was a war in Mexico called the Cristero War, where when, when Christian, Catholic religion was outlawed by the government, which was led by uh, Freemasons and progressives. And they said, if you're a priest, if you are a church, you're closing. We They repossessed all the property of the church. They made mass illegal. They would shoot uh, priests against the wall if they were discovered with their communion. And my grandmother, my great great aunt, uh, was one of the children in my hometown that used to carry the wafers and the wine wow. through, through the demolished uh, ruins of the city hmm. and uh, secretly. And because if, if they caught you and you were a kid, the idea was, well, they're they not going to shoot a, a little girl, you know? Hmm. So she was carrying that. And she went through a few blocks that were in ruins because this was a very serious war and a war that most people haven't heard of. And she stopped uh, in an abandoned house and saw a spiral staircase that had been left intact, but it led to nowhere. It disappeared into the sky, right? And she started yelling, Echo, which is in Pan's Labyrinth, by the way. Mm -hmm. They go into into the pit and yells Echo. Right. And the echo bounced back, and she liked it. And all of a sudden, she looked up, and there was a white woman, a woman in white, standing at the top of the stairs that led to nothing. And she rapidly and glided down the, the steps and started going for her with her arms extended. And my grandmother saw that she was not touching the floor. And so you know, that type of stories would be told to me. and And then... Uh, there was a corridor uh, and that every night if you wanted to go from the bedroom to the bathroom you needed to go through that long corridor and that's why uh, in my movies there's this long corridor and there's a ghost at the end of the corridor because every night I would be afraid of I would go, go into the corridor and then I would see a figure standing at the end of it and my fear was always well if I see the figure I'm scared but if the figure looks at me I will lose my mind. Wow. Wow. So you had experiences with spirits and ghosts. Yeah. At a a later age, all my childhood was really, they were more part of lucid dreaming and nightmares 
Uh, and you know the, the old hag syndrome, which I, I had a variation of, when they, you know, where, where you wake up and you, you feel something, an evil presence in the room and all that. But, but I know all those have explanations. Later in life, I had a couple of experiences that were scary. Uh, I never, where I heard voices or uh, things like that disembodied in places that were probably haunted, but they were, they were very rare. I don't, I, I, I don't claim to have experienced much. Mm. Well, you did say that you experienced and, and saw violence as a child. What kind of violence yeah. did you actually see in your ch Mexican childhood? Well, you, you would you would see like like in Mexico, when I, very often you would hear gunshots at, at every hour of the day. Mm. Everybody was armed, and when I was a kid, everybody had a gun. Everybody. It was like the Wild West, and they would discharge him at the least provocation. And uh, you would you would be driving by, and maybe somebody shoot somebody. I saw, as a very at a very early age, a deadly accident by the side of the road where I saw bodies. You know, uh, one of them decapitated. Uh, uh, there there was. Um, uh, like so, somebody jumped the wall of my house, and my my father uh, shot and uh, got him on the leg, and we would see the wall splash with blood from the leg wound. Wow! Uh, you know, and and to give you another example, I'm sure in America there is not anything of the kind, but you you have the National Enquirer mm -hmm. in Mexico. You have a, a newspaper called Alarm. With, a, with an exclamation point mm -hmm. at the end, alarm. And the covers were always real cadavers. Oh. And it was a weekly. So, you know, when I would go to buy my Spider-Man or my uh, House of Secrets or my, my comic books, you would always have this newspaper uh, with, I remember one headline, which was horrible, but incredibly ironic. A dead, a dead youngster, and the mother with a rebar, uh, and it said she killed her daughter because she wouldn't drink her milk. <laughs> and then the mother, the mother, underneath the photo of the mother, it, the mother says, "It, it, it, it is good for her bones." Oh my that God! Was good for her bones. <laughs> so, so it was. It was a very uh, Mexico is extremely surreal. And I know this sounds like a cliche, but it is. Uh, the imagery that comes to mind when I was a kid, I, I, there's all sorts of strange imagery. And, and, and the culture the culture around death is very different. This is, again, a cliche, but it's completely true. The way we see life, the way we see death. We, we celebrate life because we know death is right around the corner. You know, and, and so there's a sense of fatality. And a sense of doom that compels you to live while you can. So there is, it's a culture of uh, opposites, of, uh, of uh, in, a very interesting yin and yang. Well, there's a lot to do. Well, Latin Catholicism and blood seem to go hand in hand. And oh, yeah. do you feel that, that Latin Catholicism, Mexican church, uh, in your experience, was a very sanguinary one? Ex exceedingly so, and, and you know, uh, and 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 when I when I showed my collection in Mexico, we curated a whole section 
that had provincial Catholic images because uh, that clearly signaled uh, to the audience where, where I came from. I mean, you would have exposed fractures. Uh, I'm, I'm talking forensically accurate depictions of martyrdom. Uh, St. Lucy would have her eyes gouged out and you would see the, the tears of blood from her empty sockets. Uh, you would have uh, Jesus lay down with a, a purple hematoma and a, uh, an exposed piece of knee, bone, uh, blah, blah, blah. And, and it really it really affected me because part of the rit ritual uh, was to eat the body of Christ and drink his blood. Mm. And it was it was uh, it was extremely disturbing for somebody young, you know, that that that, that you want, uh, because it was explained to me in no uncertain terms that this was not a symbol, that this was by transmogrification, this was really, really, really the flesh of Christ, and really His blood. So it was not a metaphor, but in reality, no. the flesh and blood. Well, no. when you were a kid. You drew. Uh, people don't know that you are a truly fine artist. That you're, you know, no, we've seen the book, and and I've seen your sketches, and and I've been to the museum in your house, and all all of that. And tell me about that uh, finding your artistic ability as a child. I started out drawing before I started writing, and my father was trained in art school and the like. But I I'm interested in knowing when that window opened where you realize I can do this. Oh, from a very early age. I mean, I, I must have been less than four or four, very, very young. I was learning to to talk and I was learning to draw almost mm -hmm. at the same time because my great aunt was married to my great uncle who was a guy with, uh, it was a very, very elegant, came from a very old family uh, in Mexico, very um, uh, sort of um, had what, what you would call a good name you know, right, yeah. very respectable. His name was Julio Julio Sierra Sousa y del Castillo Negrete. <laughs> That's a good name. <laughs> yeah, with all those, with, with with many last names, and he had been raised in Europe. He spoke perfect French. He was a very good artist. He drew uh, one of the only things that I asked to keep after my great aunt died was one of his drawings in ink of a Parisian street in the 1800s, you know, 1890 or so. He was very old. Uh, in the 60s, he was about um, 85, I think. Mm -hmm. And as a young man, very young, he had gone to Paris and he had uh, drew, he, he drew streets and studies of people. And he would uh, teach my brother and I how to draw. Uh, so I started drawing at a very, very young age. Uh, I never had a formal study. I wish I had. But images uh, came to me since I was a very young kid. And I was also a, a, a hypochondriac. Oh, so really? I, yeah, I was also always indoors. Uh, you have no idea this 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 uh, <laughs> quarantine, <laughs> this, <laughs> this uh, pandemic has probably brought a little bit back of that. But, but, but also... The other thing, Mick, is I was I self taught I was self taught about world art. I, I my 
there was an encyclopedia of art of about 10 volumes in my parents house and i read it all many many times and i was i was raised with this idea that uh there was not such a thing as high art and low art that you know i could see steve ditko or bernie wrightson uh next to goya or uh you know picasso or manet or manet or whoever you want and and, and i valued them uh, as equals and that was that was part of the exhibition we had at lagman yeah was that we would have a bernie wrightson and there would be a, a piranesi mm -hmm. uh, or a goya you know or a, a really beautiful engraving by uh, by felician robes next to it and and we were trying to say look there art is art who were the ones that inspired you and excited you when you were young and just a burgeoning artist well i used to i, I used to love the symbolists i love them still but I, i used to be really crazy about the symbolists uh you know i i think that the uh, people uh like felician robes which i mentioned goya was a massive influence his uh, proverbs you know Uh, and his uh, uh, illustrations about war and madness, uh, you know, his dark paintings were very influential. I thought he's a particularly compelling artist because he goes from being uh, a court chronicler of the higher classes, you know, of the of the power, to to painting the most anguished, desperate. Uh, things that, that are darker and unacceptable and brutal and and his uh, proverbs uh, and and his uh, engravings all are very iconoclastic and they go against uh, the ruling class and they are really anarchic and powerful so it's a very interesting journey he had i, I thought he was uh, a, a very important artist for me i loved realism so i would i was enamored of Uh, somebody like uh, Hopper, mm -hmm. and Hopper, Hopper to me is um, a lot of people still debate if he's an illustrator or not. I, he, of course, he's not. He's a fine painter. He's just uh, in the realistic uh, school. And I, I used to like uh, the academic. The, the academic painters uh, were very interesting to me. I know that they are not in in vogue uh, as much now, but you know, I think the the the. There's a beautiful composition and a and a sense of uh, uh, traditional art in somebody like Fragonard, but but people now say, well, you know, after the break with realism, when impressionism and uh, you know breaks that tradition, that's the important uh, birth of art. But you know, you have somebody like Jerome, uh, who represented the French Academy. But I love his paintings. I love his Roman paintings and his mythological paintings. The Orientalists, I'm fascinated by their use of light and by the fact that their paintings are both mythological and realistic. Uh, I mean, we, uh, I honestly think we could talk, we could geek out on painting as much as <laughs> yes. movies, you know? Yeah, well, your love of art as a child and of monsters kind of met head on when you started doing makeup effects and things and you, you had your own makeup effects company as a very young guy yeah because because i i tell you the the thing uh, to this day and i must say to this day uh uh what i do i'm very happy that 
I have people that get it. I'm very grateful. And the people that don't get it, sometimes, not always, sometimes they don't like what I do for their genuine reasons, but some others is because of the genre and, uh, and, and, and some of those elements that I need to have to make it recognizable uh, to its origins. I think you need to keep them. Is is like, uh, but I I was, I was completely convinced that uh, in my mind there was this was the most artistic genre uh, in cinema for me. It was birthed. Cinema was birthed by by the Lumiere, you know, and Melier. Right. And the Lumiere represent for me the the, the, the the tradition of realism in a way, the chroniclers. Of the arrival of the train or workers coming out of the factory, but Melier is the chronicler of all the other beauty, of all the images of dreams and madness. And, well, and, and it's fantastic because Melier was a magician, a magician working, working with this new new form of cinema, and yeah. brought magic to film. Yeah, and and if you and if you watch the early cinema. There was no distinction and no prestige. Nosferatu, as you said, the Golem, you know, Murnau's Faust, uh, so many, and even even much later when when the genre was not prestigious, you have people like uh, Ingmar Bergman doing Hour of the Wolf, which is uh, a, an absolutely proper dark, fantastic movie. Passages on the Magician, passages on Fanny and Alexander. To me, Fellini is is impregnated by the fantastic to the point where he almost quotes Mario Baba in his passage uh, called uh, uh, Toby Dammit, Never Bet oh, Your Head in the Middle, on, on, on uh, what is it called in America? Uh, uh, I, I'm forgetting. It's the three stories. Uh, Spirits of the Dead, I think Spirit, you call it. Spirits of the Dead. That's Spirits it. of the Dead, yeah. And, 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 and to me, there was a legitimate claim of cinema as an art form in the genre. And it was... Uh, nevertheless, very expensive to make those movies out of reach for Mexico unless you accepted the production of an exploitation producer. Hmm. And, and and I admire the path taken by someone like Joe Dante, you know, but I knew that I would not survive doing it at a Mexican scale. <laughs> yeah. So I said, okay, I got to do my own special effects. I'm an okay sculptor, not very good. I'm actually semi-terrible, and <laughs> I can illustrate and paint a little. So I went to Dick Smith, and I said, look, I'm not going to be a makeup artist. I'm a director, but I need to be a makeup artist to make my first movie, Kronos. And if you teach me, I'll accumulate the knowledge, and I'll try to make my new movie. This is, this is almost, I don't know, like almost seven years before doing Kronos. And and uh, I was already working with very rudimentary makeup effects for three years or so. And Dick Smith wrote me back and I said, look, you are not the best sculptor. You're not the best painter. There's people far more talented than you that I should accept. He says, but I, I really believe in your, in your faith uh, in the genre. And I really believe that you may have something to say as director. And he took me into his makeup course and then when he saw Kronos he was bowled over and he was an early early champion of mine 
and the industry. Well, that was the beauty of Dick Smith and the makeup effects people to follow is that they shared that they had a genuine caring about everybody doing well, not just yeah. having a competition between one another. Well, and as you know, and we shall not name names, <laughs> some of the some of the old families, and, and because each studio, uh, or sometimes the family, it, it was a little bit before Dick Smith, before that generation, it was a little bit like the mom. Mm. There were a few names, the Salotzos, the the Pentangeli, you know, the, <laughs> yes. of, of makeup. I, I will not name names, but there were some of them were generous. And they were nice. And you had people like John Chambers, who was amazing and generous and great. And then you have others that were very, 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 very territorial. Mm. And they never would show you what solvent they use or what type of hair, how to crimp it, nothing. Mm. And Dick Smith, for those too young to know who he is, Dick Smith comes in and is he's not only an open book, he is truly one of the best human beings you'll ever meet. I was a kid from a provincial city in Mexico. And I, on my first trip to start the course, I went to Mexico, to New York. Very, very hard trip to, to get. I stayed at the Hyatt or the Hilton, I don't remember. And I took a train to Larchmont, New York. And Dick Smith himself, a legend, a legend, in my mind and in the artistry of makeup effects, one of one of the best, if not the best, makeup effects guy that ever lived, came to pick me up at the station. Oh wow. Bought me lunch, toured me toured me his house, spent the afternoon with me critiquing my drawings and my uh, very rudimentary makeups, drove me back to the train station and stayed in touch with me for the rest of his life. Wow. You know, and, 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 and that's, sorry that this answer may have been too long, but that that is why I tried to produce first-time directors. I tried to, for many, many years, I had an open email. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty much a very social on Twitter because that's what he, he would have done, you know. Well, he had done so much for so many people, and he created so many things. He was the first person to use bladder technology in makeup. Yeah. He did a little big man, the amazing uh, makeup on Dustin Hoffman, as well as he, he, he perfected overlapping pieces and created most of the techniques that are still in use on overlapping prosthetic pieces. Without him, there would be no Rick Baker. Without Rick Baker, there would be no Rob Bottin. Without you name it, and and even he even he even turned Stan Winston, um, Jim Cameron to Stan Winston to do the Terminator because Jim Cameron first approached Dick Smith, uh -huh. and Dick Smith said, "No, I cannot do it." No, but there is this guy, Stan Winston, who you know Stan was a master already. Absolutely, Jim went to Dick Smith. Well, I don't know if you remember where we first met, but you screened Kronos for me when I was getting ready to shoot the stand because yeah. you wanted me to see Guillermo Navarro's beautiful photography yeah. Yeah. to shoot the film. And the here, yes, it was just you and me and Guillermo. And here is Kronos, a film I knew nothing about. I knew Ron Perlman, of course, because I had just worked with him as well on Sleepwalkers. Yeah. But I was blown away by this vision. I had never heard of it. 
and you had contacted me directly and you wanted to help your friend Guillermo. Now, ABC, of course, was never going to hire a Mexican DP who had never shot in the States. Back then, back then no. Not then. Now they're kicking themselves in the ass. But, um, you know, it was this vision by a cinema artist that was so evident. And this is your first time out as a feature film director. So tell yeah. me how that all came together for you, because it just blew me away. Well, let me let me do a little interlude before about uh, how difficult it was in America for uh, filmmakers. Not now, now when you say a Mexican filmmaker, we are in a in an even ground with a French filmmaker or an Italian filmmaker. Maybe even elevated beyond that at this point. <laughs> right, this year, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say anything. But but when we started here, Alfonso Cuarón, Guillermo Navarro, myself, Emanuel Lubezki, you name it. It was extremely difficult, extremely difficult. They would not, uh, in fact, I'll tell you a, a horrible anecdote. Guillermo Navarro uh, was looking for representation. Guillermo, who won the Oscar for Pan's Labyrinth, you know, for cinematography, he was looking for representation. And one of the agents said to him, why do I want a Mexican if I have already a gardener? I, I'm not making this what? up. Oh, my God. And, and uh and, and Guillermo tells another story about a very famous director. Guillermo was fluent in French. He lived in Paris for many years. And this guy uh, interviewed him. And then during the interview, turned to his companion uh, and spoke in French. He was from Quebec. And he said, I told you this beaner would not understand anything. Oh, Jesus. And Guillermo, Guillermo kept silent. The interview finished. And he said, in perfect French. <laughs> yeah, I want you to know that I understand everything you said. <laughs> and then he said something that we should not repeat in a podcast because <laughs> of the, the insulting, you know, something insulting moniker that was given to him. You know, I, I and I, I lived in Texas for a little bit, and I experienced many many things that that you know is not so the career. If we want to call it anything, uh, it was extremely difficult. If you notice, uh, there is five years of me not directing between Chronos and Mimic. Mm -hmm. And then after Mimic, which was a nightmare experience with the, the Miramax, right. uh, five more years of me not directing. So by a miracle, I have a career. It was uh, two big uh, gaps and, and a, incredibly difficult. And, it continued. I could tell you a couple of dozen anecdotes that would be inflammatory, but it's one of those racial things that make uh, have a barrier, and I think that we are breaking through it. Not completely broken, but we're breaking through it. Well, it's interesting because you're not only you're trying to do your best work, but you are also representing the genre and representing Mexico, even though you're not trying to be an ambassador, you're unwittingly representing those places. And there's been this amazing renaissance in, in Mexican uh, filmmaking in yeah. America between you and Cuaron and Iñárritu. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's very exciting to see. And, and it's some of the most imaginative, visually imaginative storytelling that's around. And and why do you think that is? What is it about the society, society beyond the Catholicism we spoke of that, that you think inspires? Well, I, I tell you this. Uh, first of all, 
there is no country closer to the fantastic than a Latin country, any Latin country. Uh, in uh, you know, now I mean, you can you can look at European cultures, and many of them in the early in their early history are very close to the fantastic. But I know for a fact that in Latin countries we still believe in many of these things. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some, of course, in Europe. Some countries maintain their belief in fairies and trolls, you know, in places like Norway, you know, right. and that's fantastic. But in Latin America, it's very common to, you can have a dinner and say, oh, I saw my grandmother's ghost, and somebody will say, just pass the sauce. <laughs> and then pass the potatoes, it's not a big deal. Yeah. So that alone. And, and I think there is, um, I think, you want to hear something funny? I think the more you have against you, the better you'll, You'll, the more you'll fight for your art, right? And stories. I think that if you if you're going, it's never easy. I think I think people people that don't make movies don't understand that any movie is hard to make. Good yeah. ones, bad ones, terrible ones, genre ones, artistic ones. It's extremely hard. It's extremely hard to deliver the syntax. It's extremely hard to deliver the feel the feel of, the feeling of continuity, the feeling of flow. It's absolutely, uh, it, it, you know, movies are impossible objects of art that that are that are mostly made by the faith of those making them. And I don't mean just the director; everyone. It's it's an article of faith, you know. And and, and I think uh, uh, the Mexican cinema uh, is uh, really, really uh, has been dying for decades, hmm. and. My generation, our generation, said we're going to not only do it, but we're going to do it in a different way. Uh, you know, I, in my mind, to do the same things over and over is akin to madness. And I think in diversity lies sanity. Mm -hmm. And in difference, in the difference, what are you going to do different? This is what I question myself every movie. Every movie I make, You know, I don't go, oh, what am I going to do of the things I do? No, no, I say, as a human being, what am I going to do different in this movie? Why am I making it different? How can I make, uh, how can I scare myself? Mm -hmm. Mexican Mexican uh, culture survives because of the resilience and the, the absolute incredible tie to the fantastic and the storytelling. Well, I would love to hear how you went from making your feature film debut as a Mexican writer-director in Mexico to suddenly you're doing Mimic. It's a oh studio movie. It's the Weinsteins. Here comes a guy who's hired because of his spectacular vision, but he has to fit it into the machine that he's not used to working in. Yeah, you know, look, look, the Chronos was extremely hard to do, and when Chronos ended, I was about a quarter of a million dollars in debt, personally, myself, wow. at age 28. At age 28, if I had a quarter of a million dollars, I would have retired. <laughs> but I, not only I didn't have it, but I had it in the negative. Mm -hmm. So I started working for Universal, for Sony, for you know all the studios writing. I wrote uh, about three or four projects or co-wrote. I developed The List of Seven with Mark Frost. I developed Mephisto's Bridge based on Spanky by Christopher Fowler. I developed a short for an anthology for John Landis, based on a Ramsey Campbell 
short story I developed, uh, a Western version of the Count of Monte Cristo for Francis Coppola. Uh, I wrote I wrote many things, and and all these salaries uh, allowed me to pay that debt, and I was still a little short. Uh, I was about twenty five percent short, and uh, I was preparing Mephisto's Bridge, which didn't happen. I was preparing it with uh, Mike Medavoy, and uh, and it didn't happen. And then uh, Bob Weinstein saw I, I, I Mamek was a short in an anthology called Lightyear, mm. and it was uh, four directors doing a twenty minute short each, and I chose uh, the story Mimic, and I was going to do a 20-minute little story. And I presented the storyboards and the design for the creature, and Bob Weinstein said, this has to be a feature. This has to be a feature. And I said, well, I don't, I don't know how to grow it like that. He said, please come back next week, tell me how to make it into a feature. I gave him a pitch, and it was on. And, and back then, mind you, the, the reputation was that they were the patrons of the arts, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this company. But my God told me uh, something's not right. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. To go, into, to go into the misery of the details uh, would be, would be to, I don't like, you know, I don't like talking about other people, but I can tell you this. Uh, my father was kidnapped a year after me. Uh, the, the year, like, and and it, that ordeal made more sense than making mimic. Oh God! <laughs> it was really, it was really, it is the most horrible experience I've ever gone through because it made no sense. It made no sense. It's 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 as if I'm dating you because you have a red hair, <laughs> and then I die, and I'm dating you because you have wit, and then I tell you to behave yourself and be quiet. It, it made no sense. It's like, this is me, and I come with me to the party, and you want something else. It's, it was really, and this is, to say this, it was not every day. It was every day, 10 times a day, 12 times a day, there would be a crisis, a terrible moment. And in the middle of that, I will say this, because I now like my director Scott, but I always loved the images and the moments that were created on Mimic. I always loved them. And I realized I can lose the screenplay battle, I can lose some of the story battles, and I can still have, because image is a different layer, and I can present beauty of a different kind and a story of a different kind through the images. And that was an incredible turning point in my life. Mm-hmm. I started ciphering the images, colors, textures, shapes, camera movements, in a completely different way after Mimic. It was very valuable to me to have made Mimic. And and, and I remember, my if you see Kronos, my style is very sort of stately. The camera doesn't move that much. Uh, and in Mimic, I, I, I kept hearing every day uh, from uh, from the studio, move the camera, move the camera more. And I started developing this rhythmic camera moves that counterpointed each other. And I started enjoying it. And honestly, by the end of Mimic, I had what I think is my style. 
So you embrace the language of cinema more than just as a storytelling vehicle. Well, it also opened my eyes to something that is still a very important part of what I believe in cinema. It made me realize that about, you know how people say that 80% of what we transmit to others is nonverbal language, right? It's body language. I believe that movies exist 80% in non-linear, non-dramaturgy content. Uh, you can have a movie that exists in one layer and it, ha it can have the same simplicity than a painting uh, done of a, a base of flowers like Van Gogh, you know, uh, and, and yet the beauty exists in the form. And, and this is why I always say uh, it's a shame that, uh, you know, if you're going to give me an opinion or an essay of a movie, you don't have to know technique. You don't have to know aesthetics. You don't have to be trained. But if you're going to review it and you're going to qualify it like the FA, like a, like, you're, like, like a piece of a merchandise, and you're going to say three stars, two stars, you should look at the way the camera moves. You should know why the camera is moving like that. Is there a purpose? It, it, there isn't the composition, the rhythm of the composition, the rhythm of the color, the blah, blah, blah. There should be the same language to talk about film uh, than there is to talk about painting. When you when you examine a painting, particularly, to, to give an example, after the Impressionism, in which the vigor of the tracing, the thickness of the paint, the use of a spatula or a flat brush. The flat brush is what created the conditions for Impressionism to start. It was the greatest innovation. And and, and you critique it like that. You read, a, you read somebody describing uh, a starry night, and they will describe the thickness of the paint. And they right. will describe which was, uh, what was, if it was a spatula or a brush and what, blah, blah. With a movie, you very, very, very seldom, you get opinions. You can get erudite opinions, and that is fantastic on an essay. But I, I really think on a review, you should give context, and you can rate it according to what you think in an educated and careful guess is the aim of the author. Because you cannot fault Picasso for having bad perspective. Well, you know, say, perspective is terrible. He's a terrible painter. No, he's trying to break that. The difference in the art form of cinema is movement, though, and it em it embraces so many different things. And in the age of co uh, computer-generated gen uh, imagery and the like, animation in which you've worked a lot, so you can go with a dream logic and a sensory logic that goes beyond a storytelling logic. F the first movies were just snippets of real life with a lockdown camera and experiencing it. And the first talkies were basically photographed plays. But cinema mm -hmm. became something, and you're part of that evolution of telling stories from a visceral sense that comes through the language of the camera and the sound and all of these different factions that create a movie. Yeah, but, but to me, to me, the beauty, honestly, to me, the beauty, I think all cinema, when it's really amazing, it approximates music. Mm. It approximates a symphony or a song, depending on the scale, you know? And that's why I find it really uh, strange to make movies compete with each other because you have a, a great symphony compete with a great song. Right. In the same year. And of course the scale is different, 
but ultimately it is as hard to write a great song as it is to write a great symphony. Right. And, and I do believe that when cinema is great, it approximates music because it speaks at a level that is, you know, you 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 read the lyrics of a song and they read different. They, the syntax may not make sense. What do they mean by that? Blah, blah, blah. But when you sing them, they are talking to a very secret place in you occupied by uh, very foundational images and thoughts and feelings. And when cinema is great, it approximates that. Well, you had mentioned your father's kidnapping, and I know it's probably a difficult subject, but what exactly took place? I mean, the, being a successful artist, internationally renowned artist, creates a danger for you to travel in and out of Mexico, which is your home. Tell me what, what took place. Well, no, this is, he was kidnapped before I was, uh, I mean, I was, I was very well known in, in certain arenas because Kronos won uh, the Critics Week Award in Cannes and it won nine Academy Awards in Mexico, you know, the, the Ariel. And, and uh, it was, it was very, it, it had, it went to like 20 festivals, blah, blah, blah. But, but ultimately everybody knew I was a Mexican film director. Which means I was broke. <laughs> you know, I, I, you don't get rich making directing movies in Mexico, not even now. And 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 so my father was independently, very, you know, independently of that of cinema. My father was a wealthy uh, businessman. He had won uh, the lottery, the big, the big, 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 big lottery prize in 1969. Mm. You know, he had won. Uh, I think it was six million dollars in 1969. Oh my God! If you remember, in 1969 there was a a, a program called uh, the Million Dollar Movie. Yes, I do. <laughs> Channel Nine. <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, I, I saw it on the Flintstones. I think it, <laughs> Million Dollar Movie. But, 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 but uh, so it was an incredible amount of money, and he, he, he was uh, very well known. And he was very casual about it. And you know, it, it is a dangerous time, and it, it brings fraud things. But but I think I mean I travel with great precaution always. Yeah. Well, following your terrible experience with Miramax and Mimic, um, you decided to go independent again. The next movie that you directed was The Devil's Backbone, which was shot mm -hmm. in Spain, um, and is this magical incredibly sad, emotional, melancholy ghost story. Tell me about going back to independent roots and another Spanish language film. Well, it was, it was again, five years. So it was, it was, half of it was maybe a, a, a good, a good half was a decision because uh, Devil's Backbone started getting uh, traction um, while my father was kidnapped. Pedro Almodovar came to Mexico, met with me. Uh, we became very, very uh, enamored of the idea of making a movie together. And I pitched him Devil's Backbone. And uh, after my father was liberated, I went to live in Austin, Texas. And I was broke, 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 because my dad was wealthy, but my dad raised us with the credo that whatever you have is something you made. I'm not gonna 
I'm not going to give you the easy way out on anything. Mm -hmm. So he rather, you know, it was rather difficult because I, I, I had, uh, I think I had $70,000 that I had given as a down payment for a house in Austin. And I was basically living month to month. Uh, I was super overtaxed with my credit cards. And, and uh, then I said, well, I could be cautious and take Blade 2, which was being offered to me right then. <clears throat> it was sure cash. It was absolutely, um, it, would, it, would, it was a much better quote than Mimic. Uh, everything would have been clear. And then I said, but if you do that, then you are a, one kind of director because you just did Mimic. I said, so you have to manifestly declare your independence because the last time you were in Hollywood, you suffered. So why don't you tell to yourself, I don't need it. I don't need uh, a, a car to drive me to the set. I don't need a trailer. I don't need uh, a back end. I don't need any of that. And I don't need 80 days, you know? Yeah. And that's what I tell you before every movie. I say, what am I going to do? That is challenging, not easy, the opposite. And I said to uh, Mike DeLuca at Mirline, I said, Mike, I'm going to go to Devil's Wagon and then I'll come back and probably do it. And, and Mike said, can you reverse the order? And I said, no, I can't. I want. I want to do Devil's Backbone first. And if you want me, you'll wait for me. Well, the movie Devil's Backbone was for your soul. And Blade yeah. Two was something that was partly for your soul and partly for more practical reasons as well. But, but I do think, Mick, that I do think that, that if you, uh, you know, people say a life not examined, but I think a life not lived with a certain degree of consciousness, no one. No, we, I don't demand anyone to be a saint. You can you can do you can do things that are wrong, but the percentage of them needs to stay at a certain balance. If you're eighty percent somebody worried to to doing things that are propelled by love, and you're twenty percent, you know, an asshole, then your percentage. <laughs> The, your presenter is human. It's pretty good in my mind. And and I, I, when when I was going to do Devil's Wagon, I said, this is survival of the soul. Because in the short term, it looks like I should be doing And my agent was tearing his, hairs apart, his hair apart. He was saying, go to Blade 2. They'll wait for you in Spain. They won't do it without you. This they will do without you. And I said, if they will do it without me, then they should do it without me because then they don't know what I bring to the table and I just went through that right they that were making a movie right. not a special yeah, they're movie. Making a movie not yeah. a movie that they wanted before yeah the artist yeah now because Pan's Labyrinth and Devil's Backbone in particular are very personal and come yeah. rooted from your childhood soul once you became a father did that have an effect upon your vision as a filmmaker yeah, yeah, it was massive. I mean, the, the the mere fact that I had my baby with me on Mimic, I, I'm not joking, that very fact made me uh, get into shouting matches. And really? Yeah, yeah, because I, I, I said, how can I raise this baby 
if I didn't confront this guy or that guy in a strong manner, like really, really defending what is right and what is wrong. And, and that gave me the strength to go and say really bad four-letter words <laughs> to some really rude and really powerful people. Who deserved know? them, yes. Who did deserve it, yeah, of course. But, 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 that, but it, it was very difficult because I was raised in Mexico with the belief and the conviction that you, that you made more movies by being very nice and having friends. Right. Your friends uh, conglomerate around you and support you. But I was learning here that this was not the reality. And the wrong thing is sometimes we are raised one way and then we face the world. And we have to understand that you should not change, but you should, <coughs> you should know that you should use the coin of the realm. Mm. Like if you're dealing with people that are, for lack of a better description, bastards, you should <laughs> use the bastard. You yeah. should not, you know, you are not going to win by uh, virtue. And you have to defend things. And, and then you learn also, I mean, Mimic is the only situation in which I lost battles to someone. But I think in many ways I won the war mm. because I did survive and I did have a career after that, you know. But oh, no question. Never after that, all my movies have been, I have never, ever had a problem with of creative control with anyone after Mimic, ever, ever. And I've lost battles to my own inexperience, my stupidity, my stubbornness, my inefficiency, whatever, but to myself. You earn that creative control. You know, a lot of people go into it thinking it's entirely about ego, but it is no. an opportunity to be an artist and earn the creative control. It's the exact opposite of ego. Yeah, yeah. The exact is surrendering yourself to the movie with the humility that you are not the movie, but you do talk to it, to the movie. I'm right. not the movie, but I talk to it. Yes. <laughs> the movie's your best friend while you're making it. Yeah, Yeah, and, and by the way, nobody else's. It's like you have to say, look, this is a great idea, but the movie told me to say no. Mm. It's not me. It's not me. And and if you approach it like that, it's actually a very easy exercise because I do think ego ego gets in the way of creativity. I in would big, agree. In a big manner. Yeah, in a big way. Well, when you started having the successes of Hellboy, Hellboy was a huge success for you, and then Hellboy 2, uh, working in that giant studio, uh, special effects generated uh, movies, uh, it also continued to allow you to do what you wanted. You, you got to do Pacific Rim, and that mm -hmm. became a huge success. Your own Japanese uh, kaiju movie. Yeah, well, listen, all the way... There, there is two histories of movies. And the reason, for example, Mimic, starting with Mimic, Mimic was made modest box office, but it was massive on the, on the video market. Massive. Mm -hmm. And it was back then, you may remember it very well. Back then, uh, a movie could collect as much, if not twice as much, uh, in, in revenue in the home video yeah. Uh, than it did on the theatrical. And and of course, then Mimic had Mimic 2 and Mimic 3 without right. me. Right. They did it not out of out of conviction or they did it because they were great a great piece of uh, business. Then I went to do Blade 2 
and Blade Two had a very good, very good success box office, but it was absolutely bananas business on home video. Yeah. Same with Hellboy, you know. Yeah. So, so these movies, uh, all of a sudden, you know, I, I was, I was never igniting the box office, but I was igniting <laughs> all the other ancillary markets, right. and I, I had a very strong international performance, which also counted for for that much and and with that brings <clears throat> i think that when you have a success you your duty is to immediately then tackle something that should be unsuccessful mm. you know so people may think that pan's labyrinth nobody wanted to make it nobody nobody uh, unbelievable they they turned us away everywhere except the last place literally And it could only be made in the terms I wanted for 19.3 million, mm. which for that scale of movie was very, very, very tight, almost impossible. Right. <coughs> so, but that's that's the movie I wanted to do after the the ancillary market, video, box office, whatever success of Blade Two and Hellboy in a row. You know. Well, what's interesting that I've noticed is after Hellboy, Hellboy Two, all of your movies have been your own. They've yes. been original ideas. They've been Guillermo del Toro from conception to completion, and you are or, or, in, or in close collaboration, you know? or in collaboration. But it started with you. Yeah, it, 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 Hellboy is funny. Hellboy is funny because to me, Hellboy is as personal. Uh, yeah. especially Hellboy two. Yeah. Hellboy two is as personal to me as Pan's Labyrinth. I love Hellboy two. Or, or, you know, and and it was a movie that. Uh, I honestly thought I'm gonna is the, the same thing. I'm gonna use the cloud because Pan's Labyrinth became the first. The, it was the most successful Spanish language movie of all times for a long time, yeah. and it was it was uh, it won Academy Awards and it was nominated for many. And I used that cloud to create a superhero movie before they were prestigious uh, or common. And that was completely bananas. <laughs> Hellboy 2 is one of the weirdest superhero movies ever made. <clears throat> to me, it's a fairy tale. I think I think uh, it was an anomaly. Uh, Hellboy 1 belonged to some degree to the universe that was created with Mike by Mike on, in his fabulous graphic novels. Hellboy 2 sort of took off in a different direction. Although curiously, Mike and I did collaborate on the story to mm. to do that movie. <clears throat> I think it was maybe too much of a departure in that sense, but but to me, it was as personal as the other movies. Fantastic. Well, then going to Pacific Rim and Crimson Peak and the like. Ultimately, with Shape of Water, it seems to me you had a studio sensibility and that personal sensibility of Pan's Labyrinth and Devil's Backbone, and you were able to make them shake hands, that they became one thing, and the result being this massive success on a critical, a financial, and an awards level. I mean, the Oscars and everything validating not only you, not only your country of origin and the genre, but just this overall sense of originality. Well, look, the, 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 the Shape of Water is the, the time when, uh, I mean, the box office, is, it was a $19.3 million movie, and it made $198.5 million That's in the box office and internationally. And, and, and that was a huge 
tenfold success. But but it was the the strange thing is when it was pitched and it was we started working it around the time of Pacific Rim, uh, around 2013, and and we pitched it to to Searchlight and we did the maquettes and the storyboards and this and that. But it was seen as an incredibly risky endeavor, you know, because yeah. I I wanted to do certain things with the with the creature that you know were very seen as very risky and how how are they going to be done and <clears throat> i wanted to have a musical number and i wanted mm-hmm. to to make it like a douglas Sirk uh, uh melodrama and i wanted to all these things you know but that's sexuality too which you rarely find yeah. in this kind of movie <clears throat> well part part of the or, part part of the origin of that movie came obviously from me being completely madly madly in love with the Jack Arnold's movie, Jack Creature of the Black Moon, but, but also about a crossroads that is really weird. The first time I fell in love with any actress was with Marilyn Monroe. Mm-hmm. And I fell in love with her on the seven-year age. And there is a beautiful scene where she's coming out with Tom Ewell after seeing Creature from the Black Lagoon. And she says, you know, nobody really understood the creature. And I went, oh my God, this is... <laughs> We're meant for each other. <laughs> We're meant for each other, Marilyn, number one. But number two, I thought, that's right. Yeah. That should have been a love story. And and how can... So I was a kid. I don't know my age, but I was really, really a kid, a, a child. And it stayed there. And I think I pitched it. I pitched sort of a shape of waterish thing at Universal. In the in the early 2000s, and and with a similar sort of story, but to remake Creature, and it was rejected, and and I couldn't find it. I go, and then when I pitched it, uh, there was a, a seminal little idea that uh, that came. Uh, uh, I, I was I was working um, with Daniel Krause on Troll Hunters, the the book that became the series, mm-hmm. and he he said, well, I have this idea. And uh, he pitched it to me, and I thought, and then we stayed on that breakfast for about two hours or three hours, just elaborating. And I said, that's my next movie, which it wasn't. It was Crimson Peak. But I started developing it right then. And I tell you, we didn't expect, when it was accepted in Venice, I was really happy. I thought, well, this is, then we won the lion, the golden lion in Venice. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's it. That's all we're going to get. And then it continued. And. You know, the Oscar was a color a corollary, but but we won the BAFTA, we won uh, the Golden Globe, we won yeah. the Critics the Critics Choice, we we won People's Choice, we won a lot of things along the way that because the movie, you know, I was there in every screening for all of this, and every one of those screenings, uh, people would get up and applaud and cry. Mm-hmm. We got. People would get swept by that song, by that strange little song, and I think, it, but it was completely unexpected. Uh, you know, I, I some people say, "Oh, it was so clearly Oscar bait," and I go, "Really? <laughs> <laughs> the opposite of Oscar? To, to, to whom? I, you should have whoever said that should have called us back in 2013." Oh, it's ir- it's ironic that it it was the same budget, almost exactly as Pan's Labyrinth. It's almost to the T. It's almost exactly the same budget, and what I like about Shape is is the culmination 
of 25 years of storytelling because you can recognize strands from Creature, you can recognize strands from Pants, from Hellboy, you know, from Abe, from uh, and so many things are mixed in there. The you know, some people say, and I don't think it's inaccurate, that the girl from uh, Pants Labyrinth grows up to be Eliza in Shape of Water, and I I, I do agree with that sentiment. It's not linear, it's not, but it is the same. This this cohesiveness to that character for me. Well, it must have given you some sense of absolution. This boy who was infatuated with monsters and was an outsider and felt frightened of the the life that was around him and the violence to suddenly be the ringmaster of this film that is so embraced by people who would not embrace such a thing under normal. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 it, was, it, was, it was so beautiful, Nick. I mean, you were there on, on the first American screening of Pan's Labyrinth, you remember that? Yeah. You were there. And, oh, yeah. and, and it was so beautiful to see, to see this movie and with the old members of the Academy, with the, 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 to, to see it with Eva Marie Saint, wow. to see it with Piper, Piper Laurie, yeah. to see it with Anthony Zervi or, you know, this... And, and, and hear them react to it and see the craft of it. And it was so moving. It was really, really moving. Campaigning is so hard. Mm. You, know, that, you know, at the end, you just feel relief. That's how I felt in Pants Labyrinth. Yeah. Uh, when, when it won, when it didn't win foreign, uh, uh, all I felt really was, okay, I don't have to do interviews tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we wrap things up, I know that... You're in the middle of Nightmare Alley, which, yeah. um, because of the pandemic, has given you some problems. Uh, tell me about how uh, you have evolved it from its origins. The, it was originally what 1947. The Nightmare. Yeah. Alley. Well, the, the, we we started. We were halfway shooting, and then voluntarily, I decided to to stop before anybody in the crew. Uh, was in danger to be exposed to coronavirus. This was very early. This was, I would say, pre-crisis. Mm -hmm. And and I stood by by that. I said, well, this may sound alarming, or I, I'm not an alarmist, but I think this is the right thing to do for the crew and the cast. And we did it. Uh, so because I did it, because we originated it, it didn't feel like a truncated thing or frustration, you know? Uh, we were halfway through it, basically. And, the, the, you know, how does it change? Well, it, it's very different. Uh, we're, we're, we, we started with the novel, you know, again. And the novel is such an anomaly and a beautiful anomaly in American literature. I mean, there is a moment in, in American uh, letters where you have things like Day of the Locust or They Should Horses Don't They or uh, Miss Lonely Hearts or uh, Nightmare Alley, and a lot of the seminal writings of uh, Raymond Chandler, or some of the seminal writings uh, to me, uh, there is uh, James M. Cain, yes. uh, uh, Mildred Pierce, uh, you name it, and Serenade. You know, they have this darkness and this underbelly <coughs> brutality about American life. Uh, curiously enough, the other movie, the other 
book I would die to have adapted was Mildred Pierce. Oh, yeah. Such a great book. I've read so so many Kane novels. It's a a beautiful movie, but but the book, you know, I was was with the coins in Cannes, and we were talking about Mildred Pierce, and I was... I was saying it's all about the pies, man. You know, <laughs> like the minutia of how this woman yeah. bakes herself into an empire, blah blah blah. But <clears throat> at any rate, you read the novel. This is an anomaly. This is a very anomalous author, uh, Gresham, who wrote the, the novel. Wrote very few books, and uh, and he was a man truly at war with himself. Mm. And I think the book is. Uh, you would need to do a nine-hour miniseries mm-hmm. to adapt the book because it's so incredibly complex. And and I knew that I wanted, I needed to try to evoke and capture the the feeling of reading the book and the feeling of the anecdote and going a different route with a lot more uh, darkness. I mean, the the Tyrone Power version is fantastic. But there is a sexuality to the book that is, is primal to the book. It's important to the book. Is it a there period is, piece? Yeah, yeah, of course it's a period piece. Great. Yeah, and, and it is. it has no supernatural elements whatsoever. It's, uh, it is, you know, in the book there aren't. However, uh, I think Gresham rightfully explored the almost Jungian connection between therapy and the tarot and destiny and therapy and destiny and the uh, psychology. And he, he has a very beautiful, crazy riff on these things. And, you know, that's what we were trying to, to capture. And, and we have a fantastic cast and great images. But again, I ask myself, what am I going to do? What is going to be different? And the fact is, uh, we talk about me, but at, at age 13 or 12, I knew I would do either genre movies or noir movies. Mm. That was my dichotomy. I wanted to do crime and the underbelly. And there is a short of mine uh, called Doña Lupe, which is sort of a provincial mini noir, you know? And and I've never been able to indulge those muscles. And I, I think Nightmare Alley is not a proper noir in many ways, but it has some of that spirit. Well, what's very exciting is that it's carnival noir, which yes. is something very yes. special. Yes, yes. There is. <laughs> well, we're going to wrap it up, but first I hear great things about Pinocchio for Netflix. Do you want to say anything about that? Well, again, we we haven't we we have finished almost entirely the construction of puppets and sets. Uh, the miniatures are exquisite, the puppets are exquisite. And we were going to start shooting when the pandemic hit. So we are finishing the ramp down of construction. And then as soon as we can conform a protocol that guarantees the safety of the animators, we will uh, hopefully go into production. But I, I think that the scale, the pandemic made everything fall into its proper scale, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and and everything subsides to the importance of keeping others safe. It's not about, it's not about you, it's about the others. Right. You know, it's, it's not about me not wearing a mask to not get it. It's me not wearing a mask makes me disregard other people. And that is, I think that 
we should we should be careful and 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 give it the priority you know well thank you for your humanity thank you for your art and your friendship and thanks for your time with us today Guillermo del Toro. Uh, thank you that was just great if you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. This is a brand new address, so don't forget it. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, MickGarrisInterviews.com. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.